0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Nathan Young. Nathan is a corporate strategist and marketing expert who has been exceptionally active in the effective altruism movement, the prediction markets community, and in discussions around designing good policy. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Nathan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what uh, brought you to working on the myriad projects you're working on today.
2: Uh, so, I guess as far as forecasting is concerned, I saw some stuff around you know 2020, early 2020. I think maybe I read Tedlock's book, and I was like, oh, maybe I should check out these forecasting sites. What are they saying? And then it was just like panic, panic. There's going to be a pandemic. And I was like, wow, this really seems like I should trust this, but no one's concerned about the pandemic. And I talked to my dad and he was like, SARS was fine. You know, like this is going to be too much. And on like little group chats, you know, you can see my friends have like put my face on the, like the man with the sandwich board saying the end is nigh. Uh, And uh, yeah, so I, I just, I got into it. I thought it was, it was interesting. Um, And then I sort of started a project called the Coronavirus Tech Handbook because I thought it was was going to be a problem, and lo and behold, coronavirus happened uh, and so I guess that's the thing which really cemented in my mind that forecasting was a good idea because it helped me at this sort of key time so to sort of skip backwards uh, I did a maths degree, I ran a sort of small web development company for a while. I had a sort of existential crisis and decided that I wanted to make more of my life than I was. I moved uh, and then you know, I tried to move to a new city and then, uh, then coronavirus happened. So that's been a somewhat interesting experience. Um, and then after that, I guess, yeah, I've been asking more questions around how can, how can forecasting be used, how can we get better decisions and how can we be less wrong as individuals? I am, you know, I, I, I'm prone to being very overconfident. And so I like to have a way to hold myself to account.
0: Yeah, so I definitely want to follow up on the coronavirus tech handbook because I was reading a little bit about that and doing research for this interview. But I, I thought first we could focus on the prediction market's angle. So you noted that it's a way for you to correct a bias towards being overconfident and kind of holding yourself accountable. And you think that it's a, a suitable mechanism for allowing better collected decision making. So can you just walk us through what a prediction market is for somebody who hasn't heard about it? And then I've got some follow up questions on how they work.
2: Right. So there are two fundamental types. There's so a prediction market in its simplest terms is that you say either whether something will happen or it won't, or you give some percentage surety, and then you are rewarded in some currency if it happens or if it doesn't, depending on what you said. And so the kind of two basic ones are financial markets where uh, you there will be some assets which either... You either buy the it's going to happen asset or the it's not going to happen asset. And so you say, "Ah, this asset, the the it's going to happen asset, it's it's underpriced, I'll buy it. And it will give me money when it happens. And so that's like one side. And the other side is like reputational markets where uh, you don't get any money, no money's involved, but you get internet points and prestige. And if people have heard of super forecasters, being a super forecaster is a kind of prestige. And so you're either sort of fighting against reality or you're fighting against your fellow forecasters. Um, And uh, the sort of broad strokes, uh, and and don't quote me on this, but the broad strokes are, they're like roughly similar for like short-term things. There may be financial markets update slightly quicker because people have real incentives to kind of, to jump in, you know, this recently, there's been a lot of markets around Ukraine. And as soon as news breaks, people might think actually that this event is a bit different. So, that you know, they might jump into a market like that. And so they might be a bit incentivized to to predict quicker. But for really long term markets, uh, prediction markets where you pay don't have very good incentives because you don't want to leave your money tied to an asset for years or maybe decades when you could just leave in an index fund and make more money at lower risk.
0: I see. So something about the underlying mechanism just disincentivizes parking an asset for the long term in a prediction market to arrive at a better understanding. Yeah, so let's say,
2: let's say you think there's, something, there's, some, there's an event which is, is you think is almost certain, like you know, 99% likely to happen, and the market thinks it's 50% likely to happen. So if that event is happening tomorrow, then you can put in a load of money today, and you can take out twice the amount of money tomorrow and that's that's absolutely fantastic you know you're 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 certain it's going to happen this is just you know deterministic money making but if that's in like 10 years time then you might as well leave your money in the bank at 7% for your 10 year period and uh you will make i don't know 1.07 to the power 10 someone can do that for me uh but that's like a relatively similar amount and if, if it's longer than that then you know you could have made Double in one day is great. Double in ten years, not so much.
0: Where are you getting seven percent interest on savings in a bank account?
2: <laughs> um, isn't that rough? Uh, don't quote again. Isn't that the rough amount that like the um, the index funds have gone up over like the last hundred years? I don't know. That's like the oh, that's possible.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of your checking account. Yeah, I mean, I suppose. Oh yeah, my,
2: No, no, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the banks in England very different. Like that's. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, they are not. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, that's, that's the number in my head. Uh,
0: so, I wanted to ask about the sorts of questions that prediction markets are good at solving. We've sort of tackled that from one perspective with respect to the uh, from one perspective with respect to long term and short term and the two different kinds of markets. But just generally, what are the sorts of things that you see people successfully getting clarity on via prediction markets? And what are some things that like wouldn't be as well suited for it?
2: Yeah, so I guess at this point, I'm going to, like, language issues like prediction markets versus prediction polls, prediction polls being the reputational ones. So we're going to talk about the, the money one here. Okay. Um, the, the money ones, I think, uh, as we say, short term, I think for people to want to put their money in, they need to have trust in the organization and they need to have trust in the resolution criteria. So, you, you know, again you know around ukraine which is something i've been thinking about there's like the fall of kiev but what does that what does fall of kiev mean like when does it fall how do you decide whether it's fallen Mm -hmm. um i think the criteria that that one organization a, a prediction poll is using metaculous someone pointed out that stalingrad would have counted as having fallen because it's it's like percentage of city area that is controlled by the besieging force. Right. But actually, most people consider Stalingrad not to have fallen. And so if you're looking at a market like that, you're sort of saying, well, I'm not sure how this market's going to resolve. I think I know what's going to happen, but I'm not sure I can trust it anyway. So that would be a bad market. Another example of a bad market is maybe one with reputational risk. So uh, a lot of markets, I think prediction markets have moved quite a long way in terms of what they're willing to to talk about. So Kalshi are willing to talk about variants of concern around COVID. And I think probably two years ago, so three years ago, that would have been quite icky to talk about oh, disease. We were still very unwilling to talk about like deaths in a broad sense. They, You know, people death makes people uncomfortable. Uh, and so, you know, can you have a question about, you know, the number of people who are going to die from COVID or die in an invasion or die from some other thing or maybe just like more national figures, you know, you might want to ask, you know, uh, the winter flu thing. Again, That's those are questions that people don't currently like. Uh, so you want questions with good, crisp, well-agreed criteria. You know, will Djokovic play in the next Open? You know, will he win? Those are some questions, you know, everyone's going to agree what happens there. What will the next number one be? Will a certain person be in charge of a country? Well, even that is a bit confusing. You might decide that, there's difference between de facto and being the president, say. Um, but yeah, those really clear questions and where there's, again, there's a clear string between the reality and the resolution criteria. Because remember, you're always guessing whatever the resolution criteria is. And so I think on Polymarket, this week there was something where it was based guessing the number of refugees. And then the refugee organization like offered... Sort of three rapid corrections, and so obviously the market zapped up, and zipped down, and zipped back up again. And you know, you're not predicting reality; you're predicting the resolution criteria. And again, if those things can get too distant from one another, then people can lose trust.
0: I see. And to what extent do you see that being gamed in prediction markets? I'm not super active in prediction markets, but it seems like that there might be. Issues around linguistic ambiguity and what actually counts as a resolution. Is that usually something that's handled up front? Have markets just learned how to handle that better, or is that sort of an ongoing problem?
2: I, I think markets are aware and again, like I think there are like there'll be people who know much more about this than I do. I am sort of I say a broad generalist in this area. Uh, and so I but I do think markets are aware of this problem and they are quite Conservative, you know, small C conservative about dealing with it. Like, they don't like to touch markets where they think there's going to be a concern uh, about that stuff. They like to have crisp criteria. Um, I think, I think there's the only one example, I think this is true, you know, you say 90, 90% chances is true. Uh, the, 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 there was a poly market around, I think it was House of Gucci, the film, about whether it would sell a certain number of tickets. And it was quite close. And then someone, just bought a ton of, 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 yes on the market and then just bought a ton of tickets and oh, wow. you can decide for yourself if you think that is, uh, if that is gaming, like the tickets were really purchased, but yeah, I mean like markets also create incentives in the opposite direction.
1: So that's similar to if you buy a lot of your own books on Amazon and you get <laughs> right. become exactly. a, a bestseller in some category for a while.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Talking. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about kind of the oh, the areas of confusion. You wrote the coronavirus handbook and there there was so many uh, areas of confusion. I mean, we we're having dinner last night and and asking the well, I, I brought up the idea that I don't think the the barcode menus ever saved a single uh, life. And, mm-hmm. and and I find find the barcode menu is actually be quite inconvenient to use, and mm-hmm. and the fact that we no longer have salt and pepper shakers on tables also is um, uh, it, you know it's one of those things that you just kind of grown to expect and and maybe it's actually healthier not having them there. But um, this this type of thing um, added lots of extra confusion around the front end of Of something because we didn't really understand the parameters yet uh, of mm-hmm. the disease. And um, and then that fed into lots of other um, trust and distrust of all of the uh, the recommendations coming down to Pike because uh, uh, some some of the requirements were a bit too onerous. Uh, can, can you can you comment a little bit on that as um as you were, putting together your handbook
2: yeah so the handbook was this big uh like open source anyone could comment and add uh resources around the start of the pandemic so before the pandemic happened i guess a couple of weeks you know i launched it uh and then some of my co-founders joined in like very early march so it was in the uk it was a couple of weeks before uh the government response i don't know quite when the u.s response happened um and I mean, again, for me, this like links to the forecasting stuff is that everyone can know something, but nobody can say it because they don't have a reputable source. And I think this happened like a little bit with Ukraine, uh, that people, that they were afraid to say, it's probably going to happen, whereas prediction markets don't need to be afraid. People can just put money on it, sort of on, in secret anonymously. Um, and so none of the big organizations, they didn't want to say a wrong thing they had a lot of downside risk, and I guess they personally weren't going to get a lot of, of benefit by giving clear instructions. They didn't know what was happening. And so we created sort of somewhere between Google Docs and Wikipedia, anyone could add resources. And so, you know, very quickly you had pages spring up advice for doctors, like literally health pathways, things moving through, advice for mutual aid groups, those big sort of community uh, uprising, kind of like of, 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 of people helping their neighbors. Uh, people buying, you know, if you had an elderly relative who might not be safe, people buying stuff for them and communicating in WhatsApp groups, Um, people making uh, ventilators. I don't know if you remember in -hmm. the early pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, that was like a really big deal in a way that I think has been largely forgotten. Um, And so, yeah, I think there was this thing about we were able to offer advice in a space uh, and nobody else felt comfortable to. uh, And then, you know, after a sort of a month or so, some of those big institutional players came in behind and started offering uh, their kind of, uh, you know, the stamp of approval, advice. Um, to answer your your question more specifically, yeah, I think uh, I think there is a big question about cost and benefit, and uh, much like. Uh, planes and plane security and whether you think plane security has has saved lots of lives or whether you think it's a a massive hassle and how many lives it should save uh, for it, you know, those are difficult questions. And I think this is is quite similar. Like, uh, I definitely know people who, you know, the UK is more or less back to pre-pandemic state. You see people maybe wearing them on the underground, on the tube in London. Um, But other than that, things are, Basically, I guess I go to social gatherings and often people say, Oh, can someone take a, a lateral flow test, which the government gives out free beforehand? Uh, and like that's quite normal amongst my friends, but some people's friendship groups I think have just gone back. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess I, you know, I guess I think that there, there are real costs to these actions and there are costs to lockdowns and, uh, I'm glad that life has more or less gone back to normal in the UK, I think. Um, Though I I know that some people are still struggling, and that's sad. But I think there is is a cost benefit to be done.
0: Yeah, so that dovetails kind of nicely with some of the questions I had around policy. So if I'm not mistaken, you also put together a tech handbook for policymakers or people who wanted to gather information related to elections or policy positions, Mm -hmm, things like mm -hmm. that. So given that you've thought a lot about that space, what are the general principles you have for designing good policy and in particular around situations like the coronavirus, where it's not clear what the magnitude of the event will be or how even clearly to weigh the costs and the benefits, how do you approach that?
2: Uh, I mean, okay. That's a, that's a big question. Uh, and, and for for clarity, the election tech handbook was a handbook around similar thing. Yes. We've got the name. Um, You know these handbooks are basically when you see something coming down the road, you think people aren't going to be well-coordinated. And similarly, with UK election, there's often lots of people who want to help as is, I think, the US elections have a lot more money. But the UK, you have to remember in the UK, I think the numbers off the top of my head again, don't take these too seriously, but I think the numbers are like, the whole UK party system could be funded for about like $20 million, I think, in like an election year. And that is just like bananas cheap money compared to uh, the US. Uh, and so you know there's all these people most of them are just working for free and uh, and so you know giving them a space to talk and to share resources to ask people for data to uh, look around for APIs that's that's really helpful uh, and I should give a shout out to uh, my co-founders Ed Superior and Joe Reeve who helped me with uh, the Coronavirus Tech Handbook and Newspeak House was the organization this uh, political tech hub that I was at at the time for those things and and um, I guess in terms of policy, so, so the quick answer, we can dig into this, but the quick answer is that I think things should have a numerical edge or maybe a numerical center when you're thinking about these policies, that most people are actually quantifying things in their heads, whether they say they are or not. You know, when you're looking at rich restaurants to choose, if you were forced, you could give them some scores. You know, you'd be like, oh, Burger King's are seven, McDonald's an eight, I don't care. Like if you were forced you, and you're doing some kind of comparison. And the question is whether that comparison actually maps to reality. And so I think in the early days of coronavirus, people were probably thinking, oh, you know, like there's gonna be panic, that's bad. But, you know, what I would like to see is, you know, how bad on a numerical level, you know how how much suffering does does panic cause and you can't quantify everything i'm not saying you can but i think sometimes people can look at two big numbers and say they're pretty similar when one of those numbers is say 10,000 times bigger than the other and that's a that's a real problem um but like what i would say like as the second part of this is like it's not really about policy i guess i'd say it's often about incentives that decision makers have and Uh, I think, so in the UK, politicians are paid, like most politicians are paid less than like a teacher at a school, you know, like a head teacher of a school, like will be paid, I don't know, £130,000 or something, I don't know. But like, but most MPs are paid like £75,000, which I guess is like, what, like 80 80 or $90,000. So that's like the top level decision makers in the UK, that's how much they're paid. They have to do like two or three jobs at once they have to like do like community surgeries where they go around they have to travel across the country backwards and forth they have to uh they have to do negotiations with their colleagues they have to stand in line to vote for a long time and so they don't have like they're very busy and they don't have loads of time to, to read through and think about upcoming sort of existential crises um and uh i think most of the things I think about around policy are around how can we give people more space or better incentives to think uh, over a longer time scale. Uh Politicians are very well incentivized to think what will get them elected next time. And I don't think that's sort of callous or short-sighted of them. I think that's, you know, they have families. They don't want their kids to be unable to eat. Uh Sure like like any of us would mm-hmm. and so i think you know around policy my questions are you know how do you pay them enough and give them maybe like a sort of stipend afterwards how do you uh how do you incentivize a broad range of people to be able to get into politics when it costs so much money up front uh and then i think you might be able to have some people who are able to spend you know that extra time in you know again like with the ukraine crisis uh it doesn't surprise me if politicians aren't spending loads of time in January and February of this year before it really became big news looking at this because they're just phenomenally busy people.
1: Yeah, and going back to the uh, coronavirus issues, um, it seemed like the policy people there were focused on on one objective and it was much bigger than that. They, they were very myopic in how they were looking at solving the problem, but overlooking all of the ancillary things and the unintended consequences became huge. Um, mm-hmm. Just the uh, the number of people quitting their jobs, um, leaving far fewer people in the workforce. The the shortages of uh, of everything. This whole supply chain issues, um, just uh, chip shortages, car shortages. Um, and then the, the ramp up of, of homelessness and suicides and domestic abuse and, and ancillary things that people were dying from that increased dramatically. And so how, how do you create policy um, effectively without, over, without turning a blind eye to all of the unintended consequences that could happen?
2: Well, I mean, I think you've got to remember that policymakers, so we've talked about politicians, there's also civil servants, but like policymakers, they get like very bad, bad things happen when things go wrong. So not necessarily like terrible things that people sometimes get fired, sometimes not, though, you know, nobody wants something to go wrong, but like how good do the good things that happen if things go right? So if you imagine you're a VC, right? Like, you know, you invest in 100 companies and one of those companies, you know, uh, a billion X's in value or whatever, and the rest go bankrupt. And so, you know, you lost the money, like that was bad, the money you lost, but like the one that goes right more than covers for all of those losses. I think you imagine a civil servant or, you know, a politician, both of those in the same situation, uh, I think they're going to be hounded far more for the 99 projects that failed than the one project which succeeded vastly. I think people will just kind of go, but like, what about all this? The, the, those those failures will be brought up for years, maybe decades. Right. Uh, and, you know, if you're like a middle manager in an organization, uh, are you gonna, you know, if you're a VC, you get some of the carry, don't you? You get like a, right. you get a load of money. You're mm-hmm. really wealthy. Uh, and, and you're wealthy in proportion to how much money you make. Uh, whereas you're not something in proportion to how many lives you save. Uh, and, I I'm not implying that these people do it for the money or that they want lots more money, but I'm just saying that like on a on a basis, humans are motivated by things. And I think if you're sitting at your desk as a VC being like, oh, this seems like a risky bet, but it might go well, but it's gonna cover all my other bets, then you're likely to take it. Whereas if you're a policymaker who's like, Well, even if this goes well, I think this this portfolio is such that probably most are gonna fail and I'm gonna be net down a long way, then that's the reason that people make these kind of what might be considered safe choices which I think you look at and you think so you know in the UK um one thing that was suggested was challenge trials so you get volunteers and they, they volunteer to be given uh maybe a vaccine or a placebo and then they get uh um so, so maybe they that then they get infected or they're allowed to be infected and then uh you get like much more rapid data because they, they they all get infected and you can see how much the, uh, and they get like state-of-the-art medical care, you know, they're, they're, they're low risk people anyway, but you can really look at these two groups and you can be like, and maybe you get much quicker approvals. And a lot of people, I mean, I think actually probably the public, seems like the UK public in general thinks this is a fine thing to do. And that as long as people are informed, yeah, you know, consent, you know, People are allowed to make their own choice in a wide variety of areas. But I think if you're the politician or you're the person who supports this, if it goes wrong, it's kind of squitty, it's, it's a bit icky. You know, like, is there going to be, teen, you know, are there going to be, you know, 20 year olds who die who wouldn't have done? And so maybe you delay, uh, you, you say no to this, you delay the certification of your vaccine by three months, and X, 10 or 100,000 people die. And uh, it seems mad. To imagine that's the way policy works uh, but i think when you think about the incentives on individuals and there's like these big structures as well uh, i think i think it, it makes a lot of sense and yeah i i think and this isn't to say that it's, it's okay i just uh that's why as, as going back to this previous question my question is often like how can you get people to have better incentives and how can you reward people better for their successes and punish them less harshly for comparatively small failures? Uh, I think those are more interesting questions than like, how can you just get people to do the right thing? Because I I think getting large organizations, you know, in, in the private sector, you've got to remember that like large organizations can know that things are going wrong, but they can't fix anything. Then they go bankrupt and then other organizations, um, other organizations replace them. But in national policy, uh, you can't afford for your for your army to go bankrupt. You can't right. afford for it just to stop functioning.
0: Right. No, I, I completely agree. I think those those are all very compelling points about how the incentive structures are very different between policymakers and... Business owners, for example, and and I could actually see that whole line of thinking being adduced in favor of two different diametrically opposed ideologies. And I wanted to get your response. I was just thinking about this as you were talking. On the one hand, you have the situation in which policymakers operate on a very short time frame, two to four years generally, maybe five or six years if, if they're repeatedly elected, but they're constantly have to engineering, they're constantly forced to engineer consent, right? They, they have to go back and they have to speak to their record mm-hmm. and they have to talk to the the electorate, which is not necessarily problematic, but number one, it occupies a lot of their time. And number two, it means that if they're out of office in four years, I mean, they're not gonna be on the, on the hook for whatever bad decisions were made theoretically. And so I, I've seen people argue Uh, in favor of monarchy along those grounds and saying, well, what you really need is you need the state to be the property of a family, a group of people who think in intergenerational terms. Uh, Mm -hmm. on, On the other hand, as you're talking about the fact that a VC can make one big bet that becomes a unicorn and pays for all their losses, whereas a policymaker is much more likely to be hounded for you know, one spectacular failure or many spectacular failures. Even if they have one slam dunk that that works really well, you could you could make the argument that that's uh, a reason to privatize far more things, so that so the people's bottom line is tied more directly to things like the provisioning of public goods or handling things like pandemic response. So, on the one hand, I could see. All of your statements, which I believe to be true for the most part, supporting a monarchy, some, something long term where the state is almost privately owned by a family or a dynasty, or, or on the other hand, uh, being used in favor of, of far more radical capitalism than is prevalent in the West. So, how do you respond to all of that?
2: I mean, I think uh, so. I think I think Garrett Jones has a great book called 10 Percent Less Democracy" on this. Ten 10%, percent, not one hundred percent. Ten percent. Right. Uh, where he talks about how some systems we're already very aware central banks for instance they are very it's very normal that a central bank should be politically independent we have good papers which show that central bank independence is, is a good thing it leads to i believe uh, sort of more more stability less sort of ups and downs in, in the economy i think the implication is maybe that The implication the the suggested theory is maybe that politicians if they could control those levers would be tempted to push us into a boom just before the election Right, Uh, and you know there would be no option to them so they they wisely push that power out of their own hands and then you have better results for everyone and that's not a controversial thing and so you know his book and I'd recommend people read it 10% Less Democracy argues maybe you could have slightly longer terms and uh, you know, there's been some stuff, I think it was uh, in I think Mexico, they redistricted. And so they were really able to see, you know, in the US, you have senators who are elected once every two years. Um, sorry, batches of senators, that is, every six years, but batches are elected every two years. Right. And so in this example, uh, the they had to sort of reallocate the batches. So some people suddenly were serving for, for six years, some for four, some for two. And so these people all got elected at the same time. And then you could sort of see, okay, why... How do these people behave differently as groups? And you know, in the last two years, people vote differently. They they they're voting for their base to get re-elected. Whereas in the first four years, they have a bit more freedom. They I think they propose more bills. I think is is that sort of stuff. Um, so that's that's the first thing to say is that you know I think maybe not a monarchy, but maybe you could look at some stuff around longer terms uh, to give people more long-term incentives uh and i you know i think you know i'd say in the us the senate's terms are better than the house's terms you know i'd like to see longer terms in the house say um in in the second case uh again, Garrett Jones does a good job of talking about changes that you'd like to see in someone else's country. Right. And so maybe I'm going to defend myself by saying, yeah, like, wouldn't it be interesting if not in my country, not, not for any of the people that I love, right. but some other country would attest, uh, you know, maybe a lot more privatization. Uh, I see South Korea has elected, I think, uh, a, um, a president who is, uh, is, is sort of quite libertarian, I think, who wants to remove the working hours directive remove the minimum wage, remove food standards. Uh, and uh, that's not a thing I would want, nor is it a thing I'd agree with. But we're going to get to find out if he implements those changes, what those things happen. Um, I guess for what it's worth, I think probably, uh, I think the minimum wage and the working hours are going to be okay. And I think the food standards might go badly is sort of my my quick, sketchy suggestion. Um, but yeah, I think i think the difficulty the difficulty here is 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 still that some of those those factors we talked about you know how do you privatize a coronavirus response how do you privatize an army like i think theres a like if, if your army loses its game up it's game over and so i still think there are some there are some things even even for other countries you say well that's just you the question is how you incentivize people you know and i think you've seen it again with with ukraine you've seen that probably people weren't being honest with with putin that maybe his lowers they had they were scared of him yeah. and so they told him he had you know 10 or 100 times more resources than they actually had uh perhaps you know but this is one theory as to why things are going so badly and uh you know how would how would privatization have worked there? Maybe, maybe they would have just been like, no, we don't want to take this deal. And maybe that would have been, been good for the world conflict. Or maybe people would have been like, no, we need to actually control our army. So that's, you know, I guess those are some thoughts.
0: Uh, it occurs to me that we can actually tie together the prediction markets throughout this conversation with the policy and the, um, Uh, Yeah, the policy thread of this conversation. So I'm not super active in the space, but based on what I've read and based on what you've said so far, prediction markets seem to be primarily used to speculate about major current events and also to try to incentivize people to accurately aggregate information to arrive at good conclusions. But from mm-hmm. from what I've seen, it it seems like the original progenitors of this idea, like Robin Hanson, had much grander visions for it. They they imagined that prediction markets might be a way of running companies internally, and you've, you, I'm sure you've heard the idea of uh, futarchy, a future, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, futarchy, where you actually put certain kinds of policy policy decisions like this in the hands of a prediction market. And I mean, there's mm. concerns around gamification or, or people buying shares and and sort of running prices of a of an outcome up or, or whatever. You, you have all the, the standard concerns, but I mean, you must have given some thought as to whether or not this is a mechanism for arriving at better policy. And and since we've been discussing incentives and we've been discussing uh, the structuring of governance, how do you think a prediction market might fare in that? It's sort of a middle way between what we've been discussing. I think.
2: Yeah, I'd say I'm quite. I say I'm bullish. I should. I should acknowledge some sort of conflict of interest. I've done some consultancy for a company that's trying to trying to push some of this you know trying to to build some of these kinds of markets but i mean yeah i I think uh i think i find that the the argument's quite compelling that you want to encourage there to be markets that exist on questions you care about and you want to reward the people who are getting it right in order to get clear signals again had there been a market for how many people will die from a new disease this year in 2020, then that market would have skyrocketed in February and March and the newspapers would have had to have reported on it and then the government might have had to act uh, sooner because a lot of these organisations, you know, news 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 organisations don't want to print based on nothing. They want to be able to say, oh, this is the reason and I think governments want, to, they don't want to be seen to overreact. They want to be moving some way in step with public opinion and so it seems quite understandable to me uh, that there's sometimes delays in both of those steps whereas if you have a prediction market which can, can front run much in the same way that if you think a company's doing badly a prediction market you know the market is a kind of a prediction market in itself uh, the market can can have the value fall ahead of time uh, and therefore suggest that people have a look at this company maybe the this- or maybe there's corruption. I think in the same way, uh, policy markets can kind of can confront run some of that information to allow decision makers to make better choices.
0: Why don't you sketch as futuristic a scenario as you want with respect to what a futarchy might look like? What it might look like to actually have major policy decisions being made by prediction markets?
2: Well, I guess there's like. As I understand, and again, you know, I think listeners should take this as a broad brush overview rather than things which are definitely exactly right. Um, but as I understand it, there's sort of two steps to it. Initially, you could just have an advisory market. So these markets uh, would be on big, important events. Uh, you know, maybe you'd ask people. You, you you get people to sort of vote on some kind of welfare metric. So something that they think is important, it combines, I don't know, inflation and house prices and the number of people who survive and age and longevity. You, know, you combine all these things together. And then every time that you've got a, a, a something going up for a vote, you ask people to predict the welfare metric sometime after the vote has gone through. And so you know, maybe the welfare metric includes a time span even within it. So, you know, and, you know, you're going to pass a bill about house building and people think it's going to work, but you look at the, uh, the, two, the two numbers that come back if the bill passes and if it doesn't, and they're just, they're identical. And house building is some component of your welfare metric. So you should imagine that this house building bill is going to push up the one where, you know, it's going to, it's going to leave a dent between these two markets and, so, you know, people look at it and they go, well, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be making much of a difference, but let's try it anyway. So they pass the bill and then one of those markets like returns all of its money. So it kind of fizzles into existence as if, as if it had never happened. And then in the other market, people will get paid based on how close their estimates were. And, you know, we get into the mathematical structure. That's not that complicated. But, you know, if they... You know, the people who the people who are close get the money and the people who are far don't. Right. And so that's the sort of simple advisory one. And then the the sort of full future key is that if the market is higher for past the bill, the bill gets passed. And if it's lower, it doesn't get passed. Then there's no there's no there's no voting going on. Right. It's just literally the markets decide the outcome. And anytime you want to do something you ask the markets, they return a yes or a no, you, and there's, there's sort of two steps always. There's, there's the passing of the bill where one market kind of happens and the other doesn't, and then you've got to wait for a little bit of time afterwards to actually resolve the market and pay people out. Because they can be wrong, right? But if they're wrong, then they're going to lose a lot of money
1: so so that brings up the natural question about um, a human-based prediction market versus an ai-based prediction market and um and i'm i'm assuming that sometime in the not too distant future that the ai prediction market will be much more accurate um have have you given much thought to that
2: um i guess i think I think AI is underrated, so I think it's good that we talk about it. I guess I think that if you have AI that can predict sort of long, short, and long-term future events better than people, then you might have some different concerns on your hands. I.e., are they better at science than people? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they? Because because if so, then. There's just gonna be a real broad range of changes which make I mean it's you know, it's 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 harder to say. I think if we're talking about the kind of the sort of softer like, you know, automating market makers within current markets, uh, I think some of that already probably happens. I think some people are building little bots. I think that's like that's much less interesting. So I guess I guess I I would agree with you that there's like something interesting going on, but I think it's gonna be far too interesting. To say, because as soon as you can, as soon as you can accurately predict whether a policy will improve or make things worse, and as soon as an AI can do that, then you've got an AI which is capable of making like very high-level, important decisions. Well, and at that point, you, you know, you have a general intelligence. And so, I think sort of all bets are off as to what everything else looks like.
0: Just put that in charge. Just make it like a mon AI. A-archy. I don't I don't know how you'd pronounce it, but like a monarchy, but <laughs> the A is an AI. Yeah, I did.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how concerned your lif- listeners are about AI safety. I'm pretty concerned. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope, you know, if we can get to the sort of the AI rules and is a benevolent ruler, uh, then, you know, the beers are on me. Uh, I will let out a big sigh of relief because I think there's there's some pretty concerning scenarios, pretty close to that one, if, if it turns out that something could eventually end up in charge or affecting all of our lives. And maybe, yeah, I think that's, again, an underrated problem. I think there's some underrated problems. I think we've we've talked a bit about nuclear war over the last few weeks. I think nuclear war is a little bit underrated. I think AI is a little bit underrated. I think pandemics and biorescope are a little bit underrated. There's some things which are underrated by people and uh yeah i I hope i hope that 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 sort of that 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 nice future comes and as i say the beers the beers can be on me
0: yeah what what are your thoughts around ai safety it's something that i used to spend a lot of time on and i haven't visited the debate in probably 10 years but once upon a time i read a lot of the papers that were coming out of the machine intelligence research institute and, and thought a lot about it so i don't know if you're sort of up on where things stand now but if you have any comments on that i'd be interested in hearing them
2: i i'm not i'm not up on the papers but i am i find the sort of general thrust of the argument compelling that uh you know much in the same way you might be able to build a, a sort of chess computer which understands that when you move the rook over there then maybe in three turns time it can take some pieces that you care about and you want to stop it so you preemptively you know, put some kind of defense in there. An AI system might be able to learn about that on a much larger scale and be able to preemptively realize that humans might want to turn it off or do something bad to it or stop its goals to turn everything into paperclips. And so it might take some preventative action against humans. And uh, I understand... I understand that people don't find that compelling. All I can say is that I've thought about it a bit and I'd like to think about it some more. And I, I do find it relatively compelling. And so, you know, I think it's it's an underrated problem. And, uh, you know, I think if, you know, I think if 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 people want to read more, I guess, uh, you know, they can search AI safety, they can look at things like Less Wrong or the, the AI Alignment Forum. And I think there's like a lot of wiser people than me who've got stuff to say on that. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's a really you know, I th- I think we live in a critical time for the human race. Uh, I find that quite compelling. And I think, you know, the growth of AI is one reason why. And, you know, I really, I want the best people and the most sort of kind and gracious people working on this to try and try and fix that problem. So
1: when, you, when you're looking at something like the Ukraine war, um, there's a lot of moving parts. Um, well, when you look at the the burned-out hulks of equipment along the road. There's a lot of non-moving parts there too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, in a predictions market, do you you predict the survival of Putin? Do you predict the survival of Zelensky? Do you you um, h- how do you how do you pull apart all of the moving pieces uh, to analyze? Um, because any one component can can torpedo the whole thing
2: yeah i kind of think that this sort of stuff really is a thing i really like about prediction markets because you can ask the question oh does it affect the prediction markets i care about so you're seeing all these like burnout hulks news like you're hearing these heroic stories and you're like well is it affecting the market for the fall of kiev and if it's not then why should i care and I, you know, I, I'm not saying about the human tragedy, I can understand why I care about that. But like, you know, maybe is this just sort of like news porn? You know, you're just right. filling me full of stories that don't actually affect things. So, yeah, I think, you know, the markets that I would care about in relation to this, are things like will Putin still be in power? Will Zelensky still be in power? Will there be an agreed ceasefire? Will Keith fall? Um, will a nuclear weapon be launched? a flight no fly zone seems very unlikely now but there was a time when the question was will there be a no fly zone uh, will nato troops you know will there be some sort of attack against nato troops and another and i think those questions are the questions i'm interested in and you know to sort of reverse your question if something doesn't affect those markets i you know i don't need to hear about it. I think it's very easy to be oversaturated with news.
0: Do you have any idea whether or not there are officials making major decisions like this today that are consulting prediction markets? I mean, it seems like as a mechanism for arriving at true conclusions, they are becoming more and more popular and more and more people are aware of them. It seems kind of unlikely to me that Joe Biden is checking Metaculus every day. But isn't it at least possible that there are decisions being made after consulting
2: with prediction markets? Uh, so, I mean, governments, some governments have them. So, the, the Economist reported that the UK government has a, it's not a prediction market, but a prediction polling platform um, run by uh, a, a group called Cultivate Labs who run um, uh, who run prediction markets. I think they've done some maybe some Eastern European governments or such. Um, they're was, and I think according to, I think it's the the forecasting newsletter, again, there's a forecast newsletter by Nuno Semperi, and I would recommend anyone follow that. That's, uh, you know, uh, something like forecasting.substack or or something similar, just search forecasting newsletter, Nuno, N-U-N-O, and you'll get it. And, you know, he talks about there was a program around forecasting in the US, and then there's and that's moving uh, and I think there's there's some sort of government listening in there uh, I think the question is to what extent key decision makers are following those and uh, I guess I, 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 all I can say is that I would like to see more key decision makers looking at those so you know Tetlock Philip Tetlock in his book talks about how in the research he did in, in the original kind of in the original uh the, the arpa tournaments uh, uh right. his super forecasters were able to outperform government super forecasters so not government, government analysts that is who had secret information they had, they had the top secret government information or maybe not top secret but you know i mean they had yeah. they had information that these forecasters didn't and the forecasters were able to predict events more accurately and so yeah i want you know i want governments i care about to have more accurate information be able to make better decisions and to some extent you know this is a more controversial thing but i probably even want like the russian you know i i don't want the russian government you know i'm not on the side of the russian government but i think if the russian government had known how this was going to end they might not have done it and that would have been better for anyone so i think you know if you can surface this information ahead of time you know if putin could go back in time and whisper in his own ear right would he say actually maybe just stop at the <laughs> donbass region like yes, yeah. call it a day
0: well, fantastic. That's You've given us a lot to chew on, and I, I really appreciate that. Are there any thoughts you'd like to leave us with?
2: I, I guess uh, two things. Um, uh, one, uh, thanks to you both. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's been fun, and I hope you're um, – your audience if enjoyed it at Nathan PM Young. That's that's where I tweet my various interesting and uninteresting thoughts. <laughs> uh, and I guess also just a plug. Um, uh, there's a really good blog that I think covers um, some of the things that we've talked about here. Some of the sort of AI important, and I think that's it's called Cold Takes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's it's a really good blog, and I would recommend anyone who's been who's been interested in it, uh, cold-takes.com. I'd recommend that they they read that.
0: Well, we will point our listeners in that direction. So three cheers for Futarki. And if the AIs take over, then we'll call you about those beers. How about that? (laughs) Uh,
2: Thanks both. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Thank you, Nathan. Thank you.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.